0: Thank you, Rick. It's always good to be here and to open the Word. Um, My wife and I um, teach a preschool in the first hour, and we love it, and uh, we have two rules for… I'm kind of channeling Greg. Um, We have two rules in our preschool (laughs) class. The first rule is you cannot smile, and the second rule is you cannot have any fun. And uh, they have great joy in, in uh, telling me they're going to break the rules all morning long. And they do. And they do. So I, I almost feel like I need to tell you this morning as we talk about what it means to give thanks and how to be a thankful and a grateful and a happy Christian that there needs to be two rules for us as Christians. No smiling and no fun. But, you know, it, it speaks to who we need to be as Christians. We need to be the happiest people in the world, and we just need to have a lot of fun. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's more that goes into this being a Christian, but at the very foundation, we need to be happy people. We need to be people who give thanks, who see goodness all around us and are just rejoicing in it. And so, um, I'm headed to Liberia in January for three months, and I'll be teaching um, a lot, and one of the courses I'm teaching is will be on First and Second Samuel. It's actually one book. Um, they divided it hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, actually, because the scroll was simply too long. And so, when you look at First and Second Samuel in your Bibles, think one book. So I may say First and Second Samuel. I may just say Samuel, but what I mean is in the Old Testament, first and 2 Samuel. So, let's turn there in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And my goal this morning is that you leave here understanding how to be happy and how to have great joy and, of course, give thanks, and that it come from your deep within your soul. I'm one of those who was raised with this false concept that Christian joy was something you had deep inside. And you may not show it on the outside, but you are sure as you were you, you happy on the inside. And I, I just don't think that's true. I think we're happy and joyful on the inside, and it shows up on the outside, and that's the way we are most of the time. That, that is home base for us. We are just joyful, happy people. So if you remember anything this morning, remember, no fun and no smiling, okay? All right. First Samuel chapter 1. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm here for your joy. I want you to leave joyful, thankful, and happy. As Jesus said, he's writing these things so that you will be joyful and happy also. And I think to a large degree, at least the way I was taught about these first two chapters in Samuel, about Hannah, I think we have shortchanged her immensely we have this woman who can't have a baby and so she goes to the temple and she prays and then the priest eli says may god give you what you've prayed for and she has her baby and then three years later she goes to shiloh to worship again and she gives her baby samuel to eli corrupt priest with two corrupt sons And she's happy about it. There's got to be something else going on. I, I, I remember being in Sunday school. I remember in seminary thinking there's something wrong about this story. And that's one of the great things about when we read the Bible. As you read it and you see something that just doesn't seem to fit, what usually is going on is it doesn't fit because it doesn't fit what you think the way things should be. But God is actually trying to give you a message. And so, as we go through Hannah, what we're going to find out as we look at this story, and we'll um, show you the first slide here. Um, I read this book, Calling on the Name of the Lord, Biblical Theology of Prayer by J. Gary Millar. Um, It's a biblical theology series edited by D.A. Carson. And this, by the way, if you want to buy this book, I believe it's very accessible. Some of the books are like, whoa, this is deep and this is difficult. But this book is not so deep frankly, and not so difficult because his goal is, is to cause us to understand what it means to pray. What is prayer? And I've actually never been happy with the books on prayer until I read this book, and he, I believe he is right because what he says is that prayer throughout the Bible, it will be argued, is to be primarily understood as asking God to come through on what He has already promised. Now, prayer is a lot of, there's tentacles that go out from this, but it, it's very base, at its very foundation, is prayer is asking God to do and to keep His covenant promises. And we're going to see in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 that that is what Hannah is doing, asking God to keep His covenant promises that He made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and that we as new covenant people, when we go to God in prayer, that we also at base, what it means to be praying people is to pray and ask God to keep His new covenant promises. And as He does that, just, I, just, just think about that for a moment. You're asking God to do what He's already promised to do. And then when He does it, it will give you great joy and cause you to be happy Christians. I want you to follow that line of reasoning because we as Christians have to have smiles on our faces. We just, we just I mean, who's gonna become a Christian if, if your own Christians are not happy people? It just doesn't work, does it? I, uh, I met someone just the other day and she's studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses and we had a little conversation about it and I talked to her about the deity of Christ and the Trinity and things like that and I gave her an ESV study Bible and um, I, in, in talking with her, I was so happy that it became apparent to me that Jehovah's Witnesses are not very happy people. Yes! <laughs> but we need to be happy. We, we've got to be happy. God, God, God wants us to be the happiest people in the world, joyful, giving thanks. And Hannah's going to help us understand how to do that and what it means. So... First Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1. Let me just pray. Uh, Father, your word is a supernatural book and we just can't understand it by ourselves. So send your spirit to us. Open our minds and our hearts. and, And Father, at the end of the day, may we know Jesus better and be absolutely astounded, be absolutely blown away by his goodness, his graciousness, and his work through us. Make us happy people, Father. Make us joyful people. Make us people of thanksgiving. And use first and second Samuel to bring that about in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. We're just gonna go through the text, gonna explain as I go through and try to prove this for you that this is what Hannah is doing. There was a certain man of Ramath Eam. Zophim, (laughs) that's a long name, Laguna Hills is easier, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, this is the dad, this is the father, Hannah's husband in the story, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite, he had two wives. Not a good thing, all right? Everybody who has more than one wives in the Old Testament has trouble I don't think we need to explain. It's, it's a problem. You already kind of know what the story's about already, don't you? The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. The plot thickens. You got a guy, he marries two women. One is fertile, the other, nothing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be, prob- it's, this is going to be problematic. Now, this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The Lord of armies, your Bible may read. First time in the Bible, this phrase occurs. It should cause us to think, something's up, something's up. He's the Lord of armies, he's the Lord of hosts. And they worshiped at Shiloh. Jerusalem hasn't been opened yet for worship, the temple. David's not king. They have no king. Actually, they live in the time of the judges, when the nation of Israel is an absolute mess. They are 12 separate tribes doing what is right in their own eyes. They're killing each other. They're not much of a nation. Things are bad at this time in the life of Israel. Sacrificed the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So we got Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, his sons. If you read further on in chapters 2 and 3, you'll discover that these two sons are sleeping with the temple help, and they're stealing the offering of God. They are bad dudes. And Eli, dad, knows about it and doesn't do anything about it. So, it's not only is the nation in trouble, but the priesthood is in trouble, and worship is in trouble. It's, it's just a bad situation, and this tips us off at the beginning of the story that we've got a corrupt priesthood. They need help. The nation needs help. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. Oh, man. (laughs) Not only did he have two wives, but it's very apparent which one he loved more than the other one. He's just just trying to recreate the problems of the patriarchs. Though the Lord had closed her womb. He says the same thing in verse 6. Because the Lord had closed her womb. The plot thickens even further. So, we have Elkanah. He's got two wives. One is fertile myrtle, the other one barren, and the Lord has caused her to be barren. He wants her to be barren. And then the husband loves the barren one more than the one with the kids. Verse 6, and her rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. So it gets even worse. (laughs) We got Elkanah, two wives, one kids, no kids. And it it seems like Penina uses the yearly sojourn to worship at Shiloh as a time to, to hunker down on the nana, 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 I have kids and you don't. And you could could just imagine. God's blessing me. He's not blessing you. What's wrong with you? Is there great sin in your life? Let's keep reading. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why are you fasting? And why is your heart so sad? This guy's totally clueless, look at what he says. I am not, am I more to you than 10 sons? Hey, you got me, babe. (laughs) What's the deal? You got me. Well, guys, it might be that we're just not that great, but But I want you to notice, she does not eat and soon we're gonna find her praying. We almost need to relegate praying and fasting to a hyphenated word that always goes together. I'm going to tell this. I'm, I'll tell you this. When you pray and fast, when you pray and fast, it purifies your motives, it helps your praying, it helps everything. You're not, you're not twisting God's arm. You're not like saying, Look, I'm fasting, you better do this. No, that's not what's going on. But let me tell you, when you pray and fast and you read, read the scriptures, things will come to life. All right, let's keep reading. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, everybody except Hannah, of course, Hannah rose. Now, Eli was priest sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Notice, Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, the covenant God of Exodus 3.14 that met with Moses and said, the I am that I am. When you see Yahweh, he is is the God who is self-existent, who has no needs who chooses his people and makes a covenant with them and is faithful to his covenant. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord. Now, this is something that's true about Old Testament narrative. And by the way, if you're super interested in Old Testament narrative, um, I'm taking this book to Africa with me. I bought bought a case of these and I'm going to give them to my students as I teach them 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's called The Word Became Flesh by Dale Ralph Davis. There's no better book out there on how to understand Old Testament narrative than this book. And if you promise to read it in one month, you can have it. I'm just going to leave it right there. So, first come, first serve. So, where were we? What verse are we on? Oh, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, there it is again, Lord of armies, Lord of the covenant the Lord of faithfulness who keeps His promises. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son. Now, this is not politically correct, Hannah. You're supposed to ask for a kid and you're not to be so particular. But here's what I believe is going on. More than Penina provoking Hannah. Hannah was a woman of the covenant, and the covenant meant more to her than life itself. The covenant he made with Abraham and the promises of God that God made to Abraham. What were those promises in Genesis 12? I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham. In you, there's, you're going to bless the whole world. Ultimately, we see that in Jesus who came as a son of Abraham, as a son of David who came and died for the world. That's the ultimate expression of this blessing. But on the way to the blessing, what does God tell Abraham? I'm going to make you a great nation. And if you are a woman of the covenant at this time in 1 Samuel, during the time of Judges, you would have looked out and you would have, you would have seen a country in disarray, killing, they were killing each other. Read the end of the book of Judges. It's, it's brutal. We got a prostitute cutting up to 12 pieces and people killing each other and asking God whether they should go to war. And God says, go do it. And everybody dies and they come back. I mean, it's bad. And, and then we have Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. The priesthood is all messed up. If you were a woman of the covenant, you would be in great distress. Lord, I can't have kids. How are we going to make a great nation unless I have children? And, and how are we going to be a great nation unless, unless the men become godly men? Lord, I need a son. This isn't all about Penina. I'm, I'm not saying Penina wasn't part of the equation, but I think... The major part of the equation is Hannah was a woman of the covenant, and she wanted to have a son, so she she could be a part of the fulfillment of the covenant. If you get anything this morning, get that Hannah was an old covenant woman, just like we need to be new covenant men and women. And she was praying the promises of God that God was going to make them into a great nation, and she wasn't seeing it, and frankly, it wasn't there. And she says, "God, I need a son. I need a son." She had no idea that son would be the kingmaker, Samuel, who would anoint Saul and eventually anoint David to be the king who would come. And there'd be a covenant with King David in 2 Samuel. She had no idea. She just wanted to be part of the covenant. So she fasts and she prays and she weeps. Lord, give me a son. Then I will give him to Yahweh, the covenant, the God of the covenant who keeps his promises all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Read number six, the Nazarite vow. I'm going to make him a Nazarite. Lord, I want a son. I'm going to commit him to your service and the ministry of the Lord his whole life. I'm going to raise him that way, and that's the way he's going to be, and I'm going to trust you to do it, even though in a few verses I'm giving him over to Eli and his two corrupt sons. No razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, notice there we have Lord again, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart and her lips, her, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. This is Eli who, who cannot discipline his own sons, but if there's a woman he thinks is drunk, he's going to point her out. I don't, I don't really have a lot of you know Eli's not my favorite guy, okay? But Hannah answered, "No, my Lord, I'm a woman in troubled in spirit. I haven't drunk I, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And we need to add a parenthesis about the covenant, about the state of our nation, about the state of the priesthood, about God keeping His promises, and I know he's faithful. And so what she's doing is she's asking God to keep his covenant promise and give her a son. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman, I think it's very interesting here at the end of this. Notice at the beginning of this, it calls Elkanah the man, and here she's called the woman. I think the, the, the narrator, the writer Samuel, wants us to know that these, there's, there's minor characters, and, and then in the story of the Bible, there's one major character, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. She's just a woman. She's just a regular praying woman who believes in the promises of God and knows that she needs to ask God to keep his promises and to pray and to fast and to weep before God to keep his promises. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Ha! She could keep the rules. No smiling and no fun. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. They slept together, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel which means heard of God. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the holy sacrifice and pay his vows. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, about three, maybe five years old, not sure, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. We're going to give him up, going to give him to the Lord. I'm not going to go to Shiloh until we do that. This is going to be a big event. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. Now, this is where I think Elkanah steps to the plate. There's a lot of discussion on what this next phrase means, but let me tell you what I think it means. May the Lord establish his word. God's word is that there's going to be a great nation. God's word was you're going to have a son. It's going to be a Nazarite. You're going to give him to the Lord. And may God establish in this young man the fulfillment of his word, his promises. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull. By the way, this is a big sacrifice. This is not small potato sacrifice. Elkanah had to have been a man of means. Well, two wives kind of tipped you off to that. By the way, most guys in this culture did not have more than one wife. They couldn't afford it. And they were smarter than that, also. They took a ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, "O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him." Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. I have almost, well, I have a one year, eight month old grandson. Yeah, almost eight, almost almost 20 months, something like that. She's got a three year old boy and she's given him up. I don't get it. Um, If you tried to get between me and one of my grandkids, Milo, we call him Milo Bears because he's kind of robust, (laughs) very robust. And then we have Harper, who's a little girl, and she's got energy, and we have Carter. And uh, we had him last night, dropped him off this morning, so mom and dad had an evening. And um, Boy, you try to get between me and my grandkids, I think I'd kill you. You try to harm my grandkids? I mean, grandpas, how many grandpas out there? You kind, of, you kind of get that, don't you? I mean, you dads, you get that too. But somehow I think with grandparenthood, it just steps up a notch. Maybe because we're older and we don't care if we die. But if you're going to mess with one of my grandkids, you're going to die. But Hannah gives him up. I have never felt comfortable with that my whole life until just a couple of months ago after I read that book on prayer and after I got, you know, one of the principles we teach about how to interpret narrative is if something doesn't make sense, you just have to deal with it. Don't don't make some fake excuse for it, you know? It happens a lot. I mean, Esther. Chapter 2. She has a one-night stand with the king, okay? Not good. Breaking Old Testament law, she shouldn't have done it, okay? It's, it's fine. It doesn't mean she's a, that God can't use her and that she's a bad person for the rest of her life. It just means that she sinned. She broke the covenant. And our kids this morning are reading in Daniel chapter 6 about Daniel and The guys who didn't like him had the king make a law, and the law says you can't pray. And Daniel's like, chapter 6 and verse 10, you can look it up. When he knew the document was signed, he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day with his windows open to Jerusalem. If I was in Daniel's prayer group, I would have said, dude, just shut the curtains. The prayer will go right through them. Okay, I'm pretty sure prayers go through curtain. Shut the curtain so they can't see you praying. They probably heard him praying too. What's going on with Daniel? I'll tell you what's going on with Daniel. The covenant promises of God were more important to him than life itself. And God's promise was 70 years in captivity. When you pray and repent, I will bring you back. First Kings chapter 8. King Solomon even tells the people, look, when you mess up and God sends you into captivity and you humble yourselves and bow and pray toward Jerusalem, then I'll heal your prayer and you're going to come back. This is compilation of 1 Kings 8 and Jeremiah 25. So Daniel, he's reading in the books, Daniel chapter 9, and he, he sees what's written there and he's like, okay, I guess I better pray. And I better pray the promises of God. God promised to bring us back. I'm going to pray the promises. And, and actually, just keep your finger there in 1 Samuel. I wasn't going to do this, but I am not over Daniel chapter 9. I don't know if I ever will be. It's just the most amazing thing in the world. Daniel chapter 9, page 1138. If you have the same version of the Bible, I do. Daniel chapter 9. So, in Daniel chapter 6, we have Daniel on his knees with the windows open praying toward Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9, I think, gives us a window into what he was praying. He was praying the promises of God as found in the Bible. Look, in the first year of Darius, Daniel 9, 1, the son of Ahazareth, my descent by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what was Daniel doing? He opened the Bible and he was praying the Bible and he goes, whoa, God said 70 years. I guess I better pray. I'm going to pray the promises of God. That's what Daniel's doing. He's praying the promises of God. Now look in verse 20. After this prayer, a great prayer of repentance, personal repentance, repentance for the people. He prays for the sake of God's name. For your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon this sanctuary in verse 17. But look in verse 20. Well, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea according to the promises of God in the covenant he made with his people about the 70 years, presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. New American Standard reads, the command was issued. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Which means as soon as Daniel began to pray the promises of God, stuff happened in heaven, and God sent the angel Gabriel. The command was issued. And you can read about how he moved in the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree. And he says, go build your wall, go build your temple, and I'm going to pay for it. (laughs) Just a wonderful text. This is Daniel. Hannah's doing the same thing. She's doing the same thing. She's praying the promises of God. She's saying, Lord, for the promises of God to be true, godly women have to have godly kids and godly men are going to have to set to the plate to bring this to happen. So God, give me a son and I'm going to give him to you. He's going to be a Nazarite from his birth and I'm going to give him to you and it's going to make me really happy. <laughs> Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart, the strength of my life, all that I am exults in the Lord." The strength of my life, my horn, is exalted in the Lord. That's where happiness comes from. That's where true happiness comes from. That's where that deep-seated happiness comes from that bubbles out into your life that cannot be held back. When you pray the promises of God that are contained in the new covenant, if he's promised it, what's gonna, what, how will he answer that prayer if he's promised it? He's going to say yes, because he already promised to do it. So what do we do? We find the promises of God. We pray the promises, and he does it. It makes us happy. Does that make sense? I, I'm not saying don't pray that people be healed. But nowhere in the Scriptures does it say that when we pray, God is going to heal them, and they're going to be... I mean, if they're believers... They'll be healed when they go to heaven. I mean, death is a great healing. They're going to be healed, but he doesn't. He doesn't make that promise to us. He promises to hear us. He promises to have, be merciful and compassionate, but sometimes the most merciful and compassionate thing that can happen to us is that we die. It's okay. There's things much worse than death. Much worse than death. Death is nothing for the Christian. In fact, death is wonderful for the Christian. So let's, let's see what she prays here. By the way, remember Samuel's one book? Keeping track of my time, I figure I have another half hour. So remember, Samuel is one book, and we got Hannah's prayer at the beginning. You know what we have at the end of 2 Samuel, chapter 22? We have a Psalm of David. And that psalm, if you read 2 Samuel 22, remember one book, these four in the parentheses for the book, that prayer is full of allusions to Hannah's prayer. In other words, David's like, and this gave me chills when I kind of figured this out. How did David become aware of Hannah's prayer? Could it be that Hannah, every year when she went to the temple, she taught it to Samuel? And that Samuel, when crowned him king, taught it to David? I mean, could you just... The Bible doesn't tell us, but David had to find out somehow about Hannah's prayer. It's obvious. And then whoever put 1 Samuel together, they they put these parentheses in. This is a woman of the covenant. She's not a woman of bitterness toward wife number two. That's not her primary motivation. You know, know, one of the things that teaches us, when you become a person of the covenant, you're going to lose your bitternesses. Because there's something else more important in your life. It doesn't become important with your mother-in-law or your daughter-in-law or, you know, the, I know the holidays are coming up and there's all this stuff going on. Your boss and your, you know, whatever. Become a person of the covenant. And other things become so much more important. And, and, and if, you're, if you're not this way, pray and say, Lord, I just heard Bob this morning it seems like kind of makes sense and I'm not that way and just say Lord help me to be that way I'm not as happy as I should be I mean think about it if people were to become Christians based on your happiness quotient your thankfulness quotient your joy quotient would they become a Christian I'm thinking well some people probably but other people they, they actually are happier than I am and they're not even Christians so I guess I better be I guess I need to get happier. Is that true? Yep, it is true. Christians must be the happiest people in the world because we have the greatest reason to be happy. We have a Savior. We have the hope of heaven. We have an inheritance. He's given us all things. I mean, we could go on and on and on about the promises of God and the promises of God for this life, peace and joy and happiness and We've got the Word of God. We can read it. And, and the Spirit of God works in us as we read the book. And then the book becomes alive to us. And it just shocks us and puts us in awe of who God is. And we just, we just it just bubbles over. I mean, we, we become a fragrance. We get fragrance of joy. That's what Paul says in Second Corinthians. We become a fragrance of life for other people. So let's, this, this prayer is just awesome. My mouth So this is one of the reasons I don't think this prayer is about the little thing between the two women. Not that that's a little thing, but in, in the whole scheme of things, the covenant, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. When, when God fulf- when, when you pray fast and pray, and you ask God to keep His promises, and then you see in your life that He's keeping His promises. You can't keep the joy inside of you. And then you're just amazed at who God is. There's none like, there's no one beside you, Lord. There's no rock like our God. So, folks, don't, don't, don't talk so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who are hungry have ceased to hunger the barren has borne seven, and she who had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills, brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He's in charge, and this is what he does. He takes the lowly. He takes the humble. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He takes not the mighty, not the rich, not the wise, and he exalts them through the power of prayer and his promises. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. David and Goliath, she's a prophet. (laughs) The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. Here we go. And this should give us great joy. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. All the stuff that's happening right now that's not fair, leave it to the Lord. He's going to judge it. He's going to take care of it. You don't have to worry about it. No worries. Whatever whatever it is that you're worried about, the Fox News says is so important, just forget it. The Lord's going to take care of anything and everything, and he's going to do so fairly. He will give strength to his king. Whoa, wait a second. There is no king. What is Hannah talking about? I mean, we don't have King Saul yet. We don't have King David yet. And she's talking about a king here. This is another clue that makes me think she's a woman of the covenant. Because if you're a woman of the covenant, you've read Deuteronomy. And if you've read Deuteronomy, you know that there's going to be a king. And you know there's going to be a prophet like Moses. You, you know some stuff's going to happen because he talks about a coming king. And it almost seems as if she even has an inkling that there's going to be a king greater than David coming. I mean, it's more than an inkling for us. We know. They got a king, and he straightened things out, King David. But he wasn't, I mean, he had, his, he had issues. But there's a king from Hannah's viewpoint that was going to come, and he wasn't going to have issues. In fact, he was going to be a perfect king, and he was going to die and rise again, and he's, he's ruling and reigning, and he is our king. He's our king. That's why we can be happy. He's our king. He's made promises to us. He's told us if you pray and fast, the covenant promises of God, the new covenant, I'm going to answer your prayer, and I'm going to give you great joy and it's gonna bubble out into Thanksgiving. That's the way it works. Paul, Paul talks about the same thing in 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. He says, you know what? They're giving grace, they're giving money, the grace of giving money that God has supplied and they're giving it to other people and these other people are supplying their needs and they're gonna glorify God because of the grace that was given to them and they're gonna be thankful to you for giving them the money and then you are gonna get more stuff so that you can give more, and it's going to make everybody happy, and it's just doing what God's called us to do. The needy, us, go to the one who gives, God, and we ask, and he loves to give when we ask. He's, he's not up in heaven stingy with his gifts. No, he just gives. He just whoo, gives. They ask, I'm going to give. So praise covenant promises, he's going to give. People are going to be happy, you're going to give, and people are to come to know him because they're going to look at us, they're going to say, who are these people? In the midst of the politics and the COVID and the Supreme Court, I mean, we could tick it off. Uh, in, in the midst of civil war in Ethiopia and closing down India, in the midst of all this, they know they have a king and the king's got this and they're just happy people. I don't understand. They're not supposed to be happy. All right. I'm gonna pray I was explaining this to a friend last week and he said well could you give me example of a new covenant prayer so I'm gonna do that let's pray our father you have promised to us that you will build your church So this morning I pray for Christ Community Church. That you would increase our numbers. That you would give our elders great wisdom. And what a great group we have. We thank you God for our elders and our pastors. We pray that you would make us unified. That you give us love for one another. Even in the midst of all these different opinions. We just love each other. And prefer each other. Father help Rick as he Studies and he preaches, and the, uh, the other teachers here. May there, may there just be an aroma of heaven at our church because we know your church is how you have planned for the gospel to go through the world. Father, I, I pray for myself that I would be salt and light. Pray for everyone here that you would rid us of bitterness and anger and slander and malice that we would truly be new covenant Christians praying your promises and just filling us with joy and delight and gratefulness. We pray for divine appointments, that the word of the gospel would be on our tongues and with the front of our minds as we meet people, as we talk with people, and that we we would be able to say things about you because we're just in awe of who you are. Father, as we read the word As we read the word, open our minds to just be in shock and in awe of who you are and what you have done. Father, we pray that the gospel would be spread everywhere. We pray for ourselves. Father, make us the kind of people that you've called us to be. And Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for his coming. And Lord, I also pray that we would give ourselves wholly and fully for your kingdom, that we would lose our lives for you and that we would give our children and our young people away for the kingdom, that you would work in their hearts and their minds so that they would know that a lifetime commitment to the promises of God is the only way to live. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.